at a very young age, I could see that all the men went to the front lines and all the news was just talking about the wars and about the tanks and the bullets and the soldiers and the military tactics. But I, as a child, was only experiencing war from a woman's perspective. Everyone running life was a woman. The teachers, the policewomen, the doctors, the everyone, everyone was a woman. And I remember watching the news as a child standing in front of the TV and I was like, wow, they don't see the war as I am experiencing it, which is women trying to keep life going as the men were fighting and strategizing and doing like that. Welcome to season three of the story of woman. I'm your host, Anna Steckline. From the intricacies of the economy and healthcare to the nuances of workplace bias and gender roles, Each episode of this season features interviews with thought leaders who provide fresh perspectives on critical global issues, all through the female gaze. But this podcast isn't just about women's stories. It's about rewriting our collective story to be more inclusive, equitable, and effective in driving change. It's about changing the current story of mankind to the much more complete story of humankind. Hello, and welcome to season three of The Story of Woman. I am so glad that you're here. Before we get into it, I wanted to give you a quick update about the podcast, what to expect this season, and what's to come in the future. So season three will look similar to seasons one and two. I'm speaking with authors, activists, business leaders, and more, each episode exploring a different part of our world through the female gaze. So nothing majorly new there. But at the end of the season, I'm going to be releasing one episode for a new podcast idea that I have. But while it's new and different, it doesn't come from nowhere. I see it as an evolution of the story of woman. And I can't wait to tell you more about it when that episode comes out. Such a tease, I know. (laughs) On a separate and somewhat personal note, I'm actually going to be living in Nairobi, Kenya through this 2023-2024 winter and spring. You may have heard the special episode I released in September, which was about the Women Deliver conference I attended in Rwanda. Well, While I was there, I met representatives from all different kinds of humanitarian and international development organizations that are doing incredible work in the region and beyond. And that got my wheels turning of how I could help tell the stories of these incredible women that the organizations support. I also met a wonderful Kenyan journalist and podcaster there. And together, we're going to see how we might be able to help bring these stories to life through the art of podcasting. So firstly, I just wanted to share that pretty big life update that I'll be in Nairobi for um, three, four, five, six months, but also say that if you or someone you know works for one of these kinds of organizations and think there might be a good collaboration opportunity, whether you're based in Nairobi or not, please get in touch. I'd love to have a chat with you and see if any ideas come to light. You can find all my contact details in the show notes. 
Lastly, you may notice more ads in the podcast now. I'm trying to keep those as relevant as possible and not impact the listening experience. But just as a reminder, you can get ad-free listening when you become a patron of the podcast. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. That's all for now. I hope you enjoy season three of The Story of Woman. Hello and welcome to the first episode of season three of the Story of Woman podcast. And what an incredible conversation we have to start it off. Today, I am speaking with Zainab Salbi, humanitarian author and journalist who, as you'll hear me go on about right from the beginning, has been named one of the women changing the world by everyone from Oprah Winfrey to Bill Gates. And Zainab has a remarkable personal story getting to that point, which we get into a bit today. Zainab started her career when she was just 23 years old as the founder and former CEO of Women for Women International, an organization that helps women survivors of conflicts. I've actually sponsored some women that they support for several years now and could not recommend them more highly if you're looking for ways to support women and families that have been impacted by war. More recently, Zainab co-founded Daughters for Earth, which is mobilizing and supporting women and girls all over the world who are at the forefront of safeguarding our planet. What I found so striking in our conversation was, well, a lot of things, but one was the parallels between what Zainab saw and experienced that led her to start Women for Women International 30 years ago and what she saw and experienced that led her to start Daughters for Earth more recently. In both instances, women were most impacted by the crisis, war in the first instance, climate change in the second, and they were on the ground doing most of the work to keep life going, yet they got very little to no attention, support, or resources for solving these problems. I do think that story is changing because awareness is increasing and people like Zainab are stepping in to do something about it. But I still found this very striking. As you'll hear me repeatedly say during our conversation, I was blown away by Zainab's story and work and could have spoken with her for ages about so many things. She has so much wisdom to offer. She has two bestseller books you might like to read, Between Two Worlds and Freedom is an Inside Job. She's also the creator and host of several shows, including Me Too, Now What? on PBS and through her eyes with Zainab Salbi at Yahoo News. She is also Chief Awareness Officer at findcenter.com and host of the Redefined podcast. If you enjoy my conversation with Zainab, please share it with a friend. One recommendation goes a long way in the podcast world. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Zainab Salbi. Hi, Zainab. Welcome and thank you so much for being here today. Anna, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation to dig into a bit of your story and the two incredible organizations that you've started amongst many other things. But to start, in preparing for this, I noticed a common theme, which is that you very frequently have been named one of the women who is changing the world. And this has been by 
publications ranging from Newsweek to The Guardian. Oprah Winfrey called you a woman who's changing the world. And People Magazine and President Bill Clinton also called you one of the 21st century heroes among many other accolades. So before we get into, you know, it's not going to be hard to see why that is once we get into it. But before we get into your work, I want to talk a little bit about how you arrived at this point. So can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and when you first knew that you were going to dedicate your life to helping women and marginalized people? Well, first of all, I don't know if I have arrived yet. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely arrived to my heart center. That's a different journey. But I grew up in a dictatorship in Baghdad, Iraq. And my life was a combination of beauty. I grew up in a loving family. I felt love in my family, in my parents. And Iraq in the 70s, when I was a child, was a beautiful country. It still is a beautiful country, but it was also a relaxed country, let's say. No wars, none of that drama. And life changed for me when Saddam Hussein took over, not only became the president of the country, but just before that actually became a friend of my family. We did not choose the friendship. He chose the friendship. When someone so with so much power chooses the friendship, it's far more complicated to deal with it than our normal lives, you know, as normal people. It's just different. I wrote a whole book about that complexities called Between Two Worlds. But that impacted my life. Three things particularly impacted my life. Knowing the dictator and calling him uncle, not because we were related to him, but because he was a friend of my father. And growing up, seeing him all my teenage life, basically, on a weekly basis. And that impact is of fear. When I wrote my memoir, I was like, how do I explain fear to the world? Because fear for me was a very tangible thing. I could touch it. And yet you can't prove its existence, right? So I grew up with fear and that really impacted. And I grew up with knowing injustice and not being able to do anything about it. So my blessing is that I wasn't oblivious to the injustices. I went to a normal school. I could hear my classmates talk about public executions, about war, about killing, all of that. And at night, I would hang out with my family with Saddam Hussein's palace and know that this is a different world we are living in. You know, know that there is a luxury and privileges that we are living in, that my classmates at school are not having that experience. So I knew that power is corrupt at a young age. And I'm so glad I knew that. I tear up because I spent my life fighting that. Um, The second thing is war. I was 11 years old, 10 years old, when the war with Iran started. At a very young age, during that time, I could see that All the men went to the front lines and all the news was just talking about the wars and about the tanks and the bullets and the soldiers and the military tactics. But I, as a child, was only experiencing war from a woman's perspective. Everyone running life was a woman. The teachers, the policewomen, the doctors, the everyone, everyone, and my mother, of course, right? Everyone was a woman. And I remember watching the news as a child standing in front of the TV and I was like, wow, they don't see the war as I am experiencing it, which is women trying to keep life going 
as the men were fighting and strategizing and doing like that. So at a very young age, I was aware that, oh, you know, we're missing this other side of war, basically. And eventually I came to learn we're missing this other side of peace, of defining what peace is. And the third and most important part that made me come to this journey is really my mother. And of course, most of us have relationships with mothers. You know, I I would say good, but I can't generalize that either. It doesn't matter whether it's good or not. My mother, I am grateful for her because she made me read books when I was a teenager about women's rights. I mean, she would take me to the bookstore and buy me books about feminist books, women's rights in Arabic, you know, women's freedom. And she would make me read roots about American history and about slavery in America. And honestly, I'm so grateful for this Iraqi woman who lived all her life in Iraq. You know, she unfortunately had passed away since made me read about injustices around the world. And she would tell me the stories of what women had gone through and how each generation of women pushed the other generation for a better life, from her great-grandmother to her grandmother to her mother to me. She would tell me that, you know, her mother did not go to school or to high school. I mean, she went to primary school, you know, and then she made her daughters go to college. And my mother made me go to, you know, leave even the country. To So these impacted me. And I remember I was 16 years old when I turned to my mom as she was driving. And I said, Mama, when I grow up, I'm going to help all women around the world. And instead of laughing at me, because every person who has dreams, there are always people who laugh at you. My mother turned to me and she said, and honey, you will, and you can. And that got imprinted on my life. And, you know, since then, I mean, between that time and the time I got to do something about it, that was, I was 16 years old. And by the time I founded Women for Women, I was 23 years old. I went through a lot of tribulations, believe it or not. I went through an arranged marriage, which does not mean that it was forced upon me, but it was arranged nevertheless. And, you know, it's, again, complicated. My mother tried to get me out of Iraq and did not explain to me why. And it took me a very long time to understand why, but she begged me to accept a marriage of a man I did not know, which ended up being a horrible marriage, but that's what brought me to America. And it ended up exposing me to the concept of rape. And then I you know, left the marriage with $400 in my pocket. And I went to school studying translation and sociology. And it's like, in hindsight, I'm 53 right now, between 16 and 23 is actually nothing, you know, but it took me only that time to find out that this is my calling. And the calling is personal. It's not like you mentioned this awards. And when you were talking about this awards, all the times that I got the awards, I'm honored, I'm touched by them, but they didn't touch me. They didn't touch my ego. They didn't feed me. Hmm. I was even surprised for the longest time. I was like, why do people do these awards things? I don't (laughs) understand them. Like, I really didn't. Really, 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 really didn't. Because I was simply following my heart's calling, my pain, my attempt to do something about it, my commitment to stand up 
against injustice. I mean, I'm grateful that I was exposed to the corruption of power at a young age. And I was exposed to understanding war from a different perspective at a young age. I'm even grateful that I had gone through all the violation and moving from richness to poverty at a young age. I'm so grateful because they made me the person I am. And all what got me to do the work that I am doing is I am just simply following my heart's calling. That is it. If I succeed, then I am trying my follow my heart calling. If I fail, then I'm trying to follow my heart's calling. It doesn't matter what the world is saying or not saying. I'm just simply doing my journey. Mm. Well, I think we can wrap the interview right there. That was absolutely <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And that's just such a beautiful way to look at your whole life's journey of these things happen, these circumstances. And without them, I would not be who I am. I would not be able to follow my heart in this way, or it would look different. And, you know, we can look at and we'll get into the millions might I say, of people whose lives you've impacted and all of that stems from these origins that you speak of. So that's such a beautiful way to look at it. And yeah, your story is incredible and you've touched on it a bit here, but I definitely encourage everyone to listen to more interviews with Zainab, read her books because you know you find yourself in this situation in America, in a foreign country. This is after everything you talk about in Iraq that was going on and and your upbringing. And then you're in America in a foreign country with $400 in your pocket after this horrific situation with your abusive ex. And from there, you end up rebuilding your life. And at the prime, (laughs) at the incredibly young age of 23 years old, after all of this, you started Women for Women International. And It's just an incredible journey. So I want to kind of continue our story on from there. But before we get into how on earth you did that, given just your age, but then on top of that, the situation and everything that led you to that point, can you just tell us a little bit about what Women for Women International is? Women for Women International simply works with women survivors of force to help them rebuild their lives after the destruction of war. The program is designed in a very simple way. You know, by the time you reach the women, whether it is in the midst of conflict as it's going on right now or after the conflict, they've gone through a lot. Their homes have been pillaged. Some of them have been personally violated or family members been violated or emotionally traumatized and they have lost everything. Our model is, okay, We're here to help you rebuild. So it's a combination between emotional support, but also very practical support. Okay, let's let's do it. Let's stand on our feet. We don't have a choice in here. And it does a few things. One is they need financial support. They need cash. (laughs) You know, I I, everyone appreciate the money and the food and that it's cash they need because there's something about cash that gives people the integrity and the dignity to go to the store and buy what they need, not the clothes we send them. I'm not against donating clothes. I don't, you know, but not the clothes that we send them, not the food we send them. It is what they 
meet. So first we do cash. So we ask every woman around the world to send $30 a month to one woman for one year only, basically, and exchange letters and pictures to that one woman for one year. That $30 a month, half of it goes to the women and the other half goes to the following. That woman, let's say whatever country, um, Rwanda, let's say Rwanda, then is grouped with 20 other women and they create a woman's circle, basically. And that woman's circle start meeting every week to learn women's rights, to learn about their rights in society, in economy, in culture, in family, just to understand oh my God, I have this right. Because most women, not most, I mean, yes, women at the very grassroots level, if you have not had exposure to education, you do not know your rights. You've been like hammered over decades of uh, generations saying that this is who we are. And even in countries like America, we're still finding out mm-hmm. <laughs> and fighting for mm-hmm. our rights, right? So it's more like, this is your legal rights. This is your rights in these societies in general as a woman. So build confidence, build knowledge. Then the second part of the training is give them very tangible business training. We do market assessments. We see what the society is spending money on and give them very practical business skills, like literally carpentry or farming, literal skills combined with how to do your finances, how to do your business plan, all of these things. So the theory is access to education plus access to resources leads to lasting change. I do not believe that only if you give women education, they will be okay. Or only if you give women money, they'll be okay. The truth is behavior change takes different interventions. And these two interventions, as we came to discover at Women for Women, actually make a lasting change, you know, her knowledge plus her resources. So that's in a nutshell. And that program was started in Bosnia during the war. And like we improved it over years and now has impacted more than half a million women directly, raised more than $150 million to them in direct aid and in micro loans. Because after they graduate from the one year, there is a big graduation. And then we help them get jobs, whether it's formal jobs, informal or their own businesses. And we have connected another half a million women from 68 countries to support these other half million women all over the world in 16 countries thus far. I founded it and run it and poured my heart and soul in it for 20 years. And since then, I handed over to a wonderful CEO and a friend, Lori Adams, who took it for 10 years. And we just celebrated our 30th anniversary. And I don't have literally, I don't have children. This is my child. And at the moment, I see my child as an adult and growing and celebrating and nothing tickles my heart more than seeing that. I can only imagine. I mean, over a half of a million women, 150 million in aid. It's incredible. And again, thinking about this stemming from that 23-year-old who was touched personally and decided to do something about it. And here you are 30 years later. It's just absolutely extraordinary. And I want to ask some questions specifically about what you've learned from these women, because I can only imagine, you know, the number of women from all walks of life that you have spoken with 
whose lives you have observed in the most atrocious of situations. But real quick, I want to circle back to that 23-year-old because, you know, a lot of us have dreams and hopes and we want to help and it comes from personal places or places that have touched our hearts. But how did you go from having this touching your heart as a 23-year-old to what you've built today? Obviously, that's going to be a bit of a long answer, but maybe the kind of beginning stages that got you through. You know, I first started demonstrating. Remember, I believe, because I grew up in that circumstances, I grew up in a circumstance that I saw injustices and couldn't do something about it because if I've done something about it, my parents would be killed. My family would be killed. That was a very linear connection, a direct correlation between speaking up. So I knew what's wrong, but there was a lot of fear to speak up and responsibility. So when I came to America and left my abusive husband and realized the one thing America gives you with all its troubles, with all it's like, you know, being an immigrant in America is like you're constantly learning. Oh, my God, (laughs) what they said it is, you know, (laughs) but it does give you freedom of expression. It gave me a freedom of expression. It may not give everyone freedom of expression, so I do not want to generalize. It gave me, even though I am from Iraq, at that time, Iraq was the terrorist country where everyone is afraid of and da-da-da. And then there were people afraid of me because I'm Iraq, and there was a lot of racism and discrimination. I still had a freedom of expression. I still did. And when I noticed it, I was like, Oh my God, I was like a child discovering chocolate for the first time. So excited. And I felt responsibility now that I live in a country that gave me that freedom. I cannot not use that freedom. That's a grammatically wrong thing. (laughs) I cannot, you know, it's my responsibility to use that freedom. And so I felt responsible for it when I saw now injustices. So when I saw the war in Bosnia, I was studying the Holocaust in college for the first time in my life. And the same month I studied the Holocaust, there was front page images of concentration camps and rape camps in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And it was a very simple thing. They said, this is wrong. And they said, never again. It is happening again right now in front of my eyes. For me, it was learning about two facts at the same month. And I felt responsibility to do something about it because, you know, those who stood up against the Holocaust are also individuals. I mean, I know the governments, but they were individuals who did something. So I felt like I can, as an individual, I must do everything I can. And so even though I had no idea where Bosnia and Herzegovina is, what is this country? What is the language? Who is its people? What is their religion? Nothing. I knew nothing. But I knew there were concentration camps and rape camps and women were violated. And I'm living in a country that gives me the freedom to do something about it. Thus, I must do something about it, right? That's my human responsibility. And at the beginning, I joined demonstrations. And I want to speak about this point for a while because a lot of people go to demonstrations and feel great about ourselves. And then we go home and have our cappuccinos and, you know, and forget. And so I did go to these demonstrations. And after a while, I was like, but this is not doing anything <laughs> for the people. I mean, it's doing, of course, it's political pressure, it's doing whatever, but it's not helping those who are in the concentration camps, you know? I mean, like, we need to do something. 
So I decided to first volunteer. There were no, there were not many groups working for Bosnia. Then I came up with my own project and said, I want to do this. If I can't volunteer, if I can't join something, then we'll do this. I don't have money. I don't have experience, but I have $30 a month. I can give $30 a month. And that's the creation of that project, you know? And I was like, I'm sure other women do. And I just put it out there. So you said, how did I do that? You know, I came up with the idea because I didn't have money. I didn't have experience, like, but I was like, we can do this. And I understood what it means to be in war. You feel the world have abandoned you. You feel the war has forgotten about you. So I knew that this emotional connection from someone saying, I care about you. You are here. I see you is important. But, you know, I can't take the credit myself. First of all, I was at that time married to my very, very good friend and former husband and co-founder of Women for International, Amjad Atallah, who was very supportive of me saying, you can do it, let's do it. And then I met with the Unitarian Church, all elder people, their board. I presented to them. I was 22-year-old kid saying, this is what I want to do. And they're like, we'll support you for a year until you stand on your feet. And then I started giving speeches and women I did not know who they are called me and they said, we want to join you. We also have only $30 a month to come to give. And it literally started from 33 women 33 American women. I do not know who these 33 women. I just, they called me at that time, you know, but we found out a way. I was like, I'm discovering this myself, you know, and they trust. There was trust. They were saying, well, okay, we'll do this with you. I went to Croatia, which is now a tourist country, but at that time was a war conflict area and found refugee camps and found a woman to help us deliver. And it started in September, 1993 by helping 33 women and me in a bus distributing that money to refugees and speaking with the women. And it just grew, it grew. So first of all, I really cannot take credit for myself because it was everyone chiming in. Everyone did their bits, you know, versus the women who sponsored, the donors and the staff, then my my in-laws support, everyone chimed in, right? What is in me in my personality I mean, I'm because I still believe. I'm a believer. I'm a believer in making the impossible possible. I'm a believer in the possibilities of creating change in the world. I'm a believer. You know, I didn't have job experience. I mean, I was working as an assistant to someone else, but there wasn't much of experience. I guess I have, honestly, other than believing, I don't know what else. And sort of a sense of, but of course I can. Mm. And since then, I've not only manifested Women for Women, but other projects, you know, sometimes you fail. And I'm very hard on myself when I fail. And I've come to learn, okay, you know, I'm grateful for the failure because they're humbling. And they remind you of that because you get successful at a certain point and you become arrogant in your success. You Mm. forget what it means to start. You forget what it means to be on your knees. So I became even grateful for my failure. Okay, okay. But honestly, if I am to distill it, I would say a combination, if I am extremely honest, of believing and probably a dose of arrogance, I would say, (laughs) in a a constructive way, you know, Mm. know, Mm. or because you have to have some confidence to say, I'm I do it, even though you really don't have any tools or mm-hmm. 
I am a woman of color who is a Muslim from Iraq, was in America in the time of my country being called horrible things. Mm-hmm. And I had just gotten out of an abusive marriage. I could have stayed in my victimhood and said, oh, my God, you're all racist against me and you're discriminating, which there was a lot. And I was angry at it, right? Or I just like, there must be some arrogant to say, okay, I'm going to just do it. You know, and yeah, I wrote <laughs> my last book was about shadows on light and how do you own your light and your shadow to change yourself and change the world. And I'm constantly looking into my shadows. And recently I've discovered that actually one of my shadows is a sense of arrogance, which gave me that boost of energy and confidence that I can do it. And I mean, maybe I'm saying it in a harsh way to myself, you know, you can say confidence, but it has a way of feeling I can do it. I think, yeah, I know what you mean by arrogance, but I'm going to push back on that one. I think it sounds like, you know, it could almost just be belief all around. You have belief that the world can be better and you have belief that you're able to make it better. Belief in yourself. And it might be a really strong belief. (laughs) Very. (laughs) And I believe in the goodness of humanity. Mm. I really Mm -hmm. do. I mean, I've seen the worst of humanity. I've seen acts of humanity that you can't imagine humans do this to each other, let alone to animals, to each other. And I've been hurt a lot by humans, a lot. But I still have seen goodness in humanity. I've still seen beauty and love and kindness and generosity And I feel we have a choice to look at the bad part and be bitter and angry about it. And all of us experience the bad part, some more than the others, or to look at it, but also equally pay attention to the good part, Hmm. to the loving and kind and generous part. And I tend to look at the glass half full part, you know, (laughs) there is goodness, there is love in humanity, and I'm going to choose to stick to that love. Well, like you said, there's lightness and there's darkness. So yeah, yeah, when you can see the lightness in humanity as a whole, that's a much, I think, stronger driver in the direction that you're taking the world. I mean, it's it's incredible. So I want to hear then what you have learned from the women that you have encountered, because presumably you have talked to thousands more women from all around the world. You have a very unique perspective and opportunity having spoken to women, I mean, to humanity, you know, not just women, but I do want to talk about women specifically. So you have seen light, you have seen darkness, but yeah, what have you what have you learned? So many things. And they're not by any order, but one of them is women are strong. Honestly, women are very strong. My latest line I just recently came from Kenya and saw some amazing work women were doing to protect the earth. And is, you know, I came out of experiencing them and their work. It's like women are in their power. Mm. They do not 
need to be empowered. They need endorsement of their power. They need reinforcement of their power. They need support of their power. They need celebration of their power. They need to be heard for their power. They do not, you know, honestly. And this comes not only from from the women I met. Like, if, (laughs) if we go through half of what they've gone through, some of them, and stood up to the women they are, we are like, honestly, and like after seeing some of the women and what they've gone through, I was like, who am I to be melodramatic about my, <laughs> my issues? You know, it's like, I have a friend who, whenever it was like, she's like, oh, it's too much. I'm carrying too much energy. I was like, carrying too much energy. Oh my <laughs> God. I mean, you should see what these women are gone. So most women, I don't want to say all women, but most women are really strong and powerful and resilient. But we have been hit by society for, and all society, all of them, you know, for generations and created doubt and abuse and silence and all of that, right? But they are powerful and they are strong to survive and thrive despite all the racism and the sexism and the violence and all of that is an act of resilience and power. It's, I am in awe of them. So that's one, resilience and appreciation. The second, I learned to appreciate personally beauty from women because I, I studied women's studies here in America in my undergrad and I'm having issues with women's studies as I reflect on my studies because it was much more towards, like I came out of it defining feminism as strong and as do not highlight your beauty. You know, you're seeing, you're strong. I didn't want anybody to distinguish me. What's the difference between women and men physically? Like I would wear a suit, all of these things, right? So I took myself as this activist feminist who presented myself in a very particular way. And I learned from the women's softness. Mm. You know, softness and the importance of beauty and the importance of femininity. And that that does not mean weakness. It's actually strength. And it is part of the essence of life. And I learned it in so many ways. I mean, the story that I often repeat was my first time to Sarajevo, which was a besieged city. And, you know, this was a very horrible, horrible, horrible war. And I went and I was like, you know, it was not easy to enter the city. You have to go through the UN plane, da da da. And then I went to the ones like, okay, what do you want me to bring you next time I'm here? And they're like, lipstick. I was like, lipstick? Who cares about lipsticks? Don't you need, I don't know. I, 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 I'm against weapons, but don't you need pens and papers and vitamins and, you know, write with your resistance? And, and they're like, it's the simplest thing that we can put on and feel beautiful. Mm-hmm. And tell that sniper before he kills us that he is killing a beautiful person. Wow. Or I learned from women in Congo or in Rwanda that they lost everything and yet they plant flowers in front of their humble huts. That's just beauty. Or women in Afghanistan where they've lost everything and yet they care for, I mean, now just the news the Taliban closed all the beauty parlors today. In Afghanistan, and it is from the Afghan woman I learned how to take care of myself, my eyebrow, my upper lips, my, you know, all the things that is important. 
Like that, that beauty feeds us and we should not dismiss it. We should not reject it as feminists, as activists, you know, we should embrace it. That softness is actually beautiful. And over time, it took me, they took me to learn about the importance of feminine values and that these feminine values are not only soft, they are strong, they're multidimensional, like masculine values, uh, but that we need to learn them and we need to appreciate them and we need to honor them and incorporate them and lead with them in our lives. I learned that from the women. And I learned humility. I learned that knowledge, the meaning of knowledge, is not limited to books and intellectual knowledge. You know, there are a lot of people who like repeat, um, quote one author after the other and like their sentences is quoting. And I feel very insecure because I don't remember these authors or <laughs> I did not read these books. And oh my God, you know, I learn that is part of knowledge. Knowledge we learn in schools, knowledge we learn in books and we, by repeating to each other what we remember. The other part of knowledge that I learned from the women is intuitive knowledge. It is on the ground knowledge. People who are poor and uneducated know what is needed. They are not oblivious. They are not stupid. They are not ignorant. They know what is needed. It is us, frankly, who are educated, quote unquote, people who are arrogant, too arrogant to understand that we need to be humble so we can listen what the people on the ground need. And we think our intellectual knowledge, you know, is the knowledge. Knowledge I came to learn is both. And if one takes over, the other is not good. It's not constructive. It is a combination of both historical understanding of what's going on and science and math and all the research and data and figures and facts and all of that, but also intuitive, heartfelt. I believe the heart has a language and has wisdom and it's wisdom as important as the mind's wisdom, in my opinion, and that people on the ground know what is needed and we need to combine. And that is the highlight of my learnings from them. Ooh, I could hear you talk about this all day. And I love that way of thinking. And I couldn't agree more with absolutely everything that you've said and the heart and the mind and the needing to come together and the masculine and the feminine and those coming together. I mean, it's embracing all of who we are and I mean, it's so much more. And then it's, yeah, listening to not coming in with our solutions, putting on top of people, but going back to, you know, the power. We don't need to, they have the power, circling back to that. I mean, just everything, everything resonates. I want to keep talking about that, but I also want us to make sure we have time for your current world changing <laughs> organization that you have recently started. So I would love to have you tell us about Daughters for Earth, what it is, why female-led climate action is so important. And then I would love to get into some of the projects that you're working to support as well. So Daughters for Earth, in essence, is basically arguing that women are actually playing major role in climate change and that actually we cannot solve, we, humanity, cannot solve the biggest existential 
crisis facing our existence beyond nations and borders and all of that without the full inclusion of half of humanity's population, and that is women. And I do not want to, by the way, apologize or even say the word women because lately you have to like worry about even those like I was like I am claiming my womanhood and all of that and all of the children of women inclusive of all genders but I'm also women so that's the word daughters because daughters and all of her children basically so first that second is climate change is impacting significantly women Um, mostly in displacements because of the crisis that is creating, as well as in food scarcity, because it is ultimately women who tend to be less mobile than men who are responsible for their food and their children's food, basically. So it's really impacting women in a more severe way than it's impacting men in general. And that's what the world is talking about. There's some figures about that at the UN is producing, basically. What we discovered is women are actually leading some of the most important human-led climate solutions, according to the scientists. So if you hear the news, we're only talking about technology as a solution to climate change. Well, actually, according to One Earth Science, scientists came, a group of scientists came saying, we have three directions to solve climate change. The most important one is to protect 50% of Earth. Leave her alone, Mm. which for me makes complete sense because whatever disease you have, whatever illness you have, the first thing the doctors tell you, no matter what you have, is go and rest because the body regenerates itself when we are resting. Wow. It's like that for humanity, yeah. I mean, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. apparently Earth is the same thing, huh? <laughs> like surprise, right? Mm. So that is number one most important intervention, actually, to solve climate change. And it's not only 50% of every country. These lands have been mapped and water have been mapped. So it is 40% of this country, but 20% of this, but it's been mapped. It's called the Zero Net Corridor. And if you go to oneearth.org, that you actually see the Earth's map and how this is to understand where are these 50%, right? The second intervention is to shift to regenerative agriculture, which is about the health of the soil. Again, for me, it's common sense, right? Our body's health, it would generate our health, right? So the health of the soil is most important. And that's as what's known, some call it regenerative agriculture, the, some call it something else. But that is the second. And the third, yes, is to shift to renewable energy, which is all the media is focused on. And I, I believe it is because it's so technology-led and thus very men-led. So it's not wrong. It's just not the only way. I mean, we have enough technology to lead us to the solution. We don't need to invent and put more money in new technologies. Now, women, what we discovered, are actually taking huge actions in the first two actions in protecting land and water, biodiversity, animals, rewilding, and in shifting to regenerative agriculture because women are 60 to 80% of small-scale farmers in the world. But do we hear about women leading solutions? None. And do we know how much women get of all the environmental funding that goes? Two cents out of every dollar. Wow. And that really, when I discovered that, and I'm not a climate expert, and it's in the world of women, 
But I was like, oh my God, here comes the story again. Women impacted the most by a crisis. They do a lot of the work to keep life going. They get no attention and no support and resources. And we've got to change. I mean, it's like, for me, it's a familiar wow. story, right? Yes. And so the activist, the feminist in me, I was like, oh, we got to do something about it. But... Uh, something else happened in me and I almost died exactly four years ago, short of four days. And I moved from a perfect day in my life, top of my mountain, to the ICU, to the operating room where I thought I was taking my last breath. This is like, that was a second of that's it. And... I was very sick for a year and a half and I couldn't live in the city anymore. I grew up in a city. I lived all my life in cities. I am a city woman. And when I was really sick, I couldn't live in the city. And the only place I could live in was nature. And in that time where I lost my ability to speak, to think, I lost my cognitive abilities, my nervous system fell apart. Like just hearing sound felt a thousand times more in my ears and I couldn't do anything. I just stayed in nature. And out of that, I came with such profound appreciation and connection and joy for nature that I 100% believe nature saved my life. I don't mean only good food, eating good food. I was eating good food. I mean, I felt The trees were giving me like, you go girl, (laughs) (laughs) marriage to like walk. I felt each wave of ocean was like an electric shock to my lungs so I can breathe. I came out with such deep gratitude to earth, such deep gratitude that I have, I'm sorry I missed appreciating her before. Mm. You know, I feel like if earth was a friend, she would have broken up with us long time ago for being the most self-centered, narcissistic, controlling, unappreciative friend to her. And I was that. Mm. Like, not like, I was like, ah, birds, sure. Now I look at a bird in my garden and I say, this is li- make life worth it. Honestly, I'm not, exa- I look at a hummingbird, it's like, this makes all life worth it just to see this. Four years ago, that happened, but I became healthy two years and a half ago. And I came out saying, I do not understand climate change, but I shall do everything in my capacity to stand up for Mother Earth and Mm. to protect her. That's all what I know. And with that came, I went to my co-founder, Jody Allen, who had asked me to do something. What can we do to mobilize women in climate change? And that's the intellectual research that I sort of mind-led research that I shared with you earlier. But then there was a heart opening in the process. And I came and I said, this is big. Like we don't have 20 years to to do we have now. And let's co-found a group called Daughters for Earth. And let's mobilize $100 million to find and fund women-led climate solutions, to celebrate women's efforts and what they're doing and show it to the world. And to give the science and the knowledge to everyday women to understand what is going on, to understand human-led solution, and to give tools and resources to every woman that she, he, or 
they and all the gender capacities can do something about their lives, basically, because we can. I think we are living in the era of the people and the era of the people does not mean only we all go on Instagram or any of the social media and populate these things. The era of the people means that people rise up and create change. And this is for me, daughters rising up all around the world to create change. Some because they're giving money. You know, we're asking people to give $10 a month only to Daughters for Earth, to the Hummingbird Effect. We're just launching a campaign called the Hummingbird Effect to basically, in the essence, do all you can, whatever you can to stand up for Mother Earth. Some are like putting their lives out there and protecting the earth. And all of us, we need to, again, unite for the only mother we all have, the only home we all have. So I, again, believe we can. If people don't believe after that, then (laughs) I don't know what. Just incredible. And yeah, the parallels you drew of what you witnessed in your younger years with women and what we're witnessing now that is something to be drawn out. I mean, I could go on for another hour with you about that specifically. That sent light bulbs off in my head thinking about it in that way. And here you are again doing your thing. Um, so back to the beginning of the conversation, really, really not hard to understand as much as you don't care about the awards, <laughs> why you are seen as a woman changing the world because you literally are the people in it and the planet itself. And coming from your heart center, again, that story that led you to where you are today was purely from your personal experience, from your heart center. And I have to imagine that's what helps keep you going. Because I imagine you get asked a lot, what keeps you going? And you know, I'm kind of curious about that, but I do think, you know, when a person follows their heart and that's where it comes from, you almost feel like you don't have another choice. I don't, you know, I really, it's so simple for me because I can't not do that. And when I been in situations where I tried to do something, I was 10 years in the journalism world and it's a trickier world, that world, you can't always be in integrity to your voice. I literally, Mm. something dies inside me. If I am not in alignment, when I'm trying to say to my self inside, I die inside. So it's very, very simple. I don't know if other people also do that, but something dies in me and I can't, I don't want to live life like that. So all the other aspects where we sacrifice ourselves for money, security, whatever it is for me, I can't sacrifice my alignment to myself for that security. I believe I just have to follow my own alignment and that security comes. Mm. Yes. You know, eventually comes. And it may not be in the volume that, you know, all of the whatever, but it comes as long as I'm living well and I'm living in integrity and I'm eating and happy, you know, who cares if you Mm. do this, if you get this or this, you know. It doesn't matter. So as long as that happens, but yeah, that's for me is my compass. What is inside is only me know, am I in alignment or not? Mm. I love that. And once again, couldn't agree more. So I want to end with some kind of, 
I don't really like the word advice, but some kind of inspiring thought from yourself to our listeners. And what you're just saying at the end got me thinking because I understand everything that you're talking about. That certainly resonates. That's something that I try to do is stay in alignment. And I feel like a part of me dies as well if I do not. But I'm just thinking if this is more conceptual for people or if people you know, want to live this aligned life, this heart-centered life, but they're stuck in these other loops that maybe don't feel like they are their lives. It can be really hard to move from that to what you're talking about, this alignment for the practical reasons of what you might have to give up and change, but even just like knowing what your heart wants when we've been trained for so long to listen only to our head. So yeah, it's kind of a big question to end with. Well, I want to answer it with a Rumi poem, and I'm going to paraphrase. Rumi is a 13th century poet, and I love him, in love with him. I wish he gets reincarnated somehow. <laughs> um, but there's a poem, I'm rephrasing it, but it says, the garden is beautiful and luscious and the flowers are blooming and the butterflies are, you know, dancing. If you come, it is beautiful. If you do not come, it is still beautiful. Now, what is the connection between what I'm trying to say and, you know, your question? You have to find the garden in yourself. And that means to live in alignment, you take risk. It's a lot of jumping off the cliff for me, a lot of it. For me to tell the truth about my family's upbringing, my upbringing and my family's relationship with Saddam, that was a jumping off the cliff. I risked everything, everything to tell the truth. But the truth freed me. Hmm. Uh, Starting Women for Women leaving women for women, (laughs) you know, starting a new path. All of them are feels at that moment you are jumping off the cliff, as in jumping from the safety of what you know. And sometimes that safety is not good. I mean, it's familiar, but it's not good. Some women stay in not good marriages, not abusive, but not good marriages because of the safety of the marriage of the financial safety that the marriage provides. Or some men do the same thing, by the way, you know, emotional, but it's not good. People stay in jobs, not because it's good, because they're attached to the safety. So the jumping off the cliff is a risk, but that risk often, in my opinion, led me to my freedom. And every time I took that leap of faith to follow my heart center and it's scary, I'm like, and you jump and you, oh, for me, always find my wings in the process, always landed somehow, some way. I trust life. I personally trust life. But my compass is to follow my truth. And the more I follow my truth, the more the dark stones in my chest that gave me anxiety disappear, you know, and they become clear crystals, basically, right? And so the truth leads you to the garden of yourself inside of you. Now, when I say, if you come, it is beautiful. If you don't come, it's beautiful. The attachment to what people say or think, 
or what society measures as success or failure or good or bad is irrelevant. It's because that's attachment to us and many of us, right? You know, it's not that I don't have it, by the way. I'm aware of it. And when I catch myself in it, I'm like, ah, here it is, right? And so we all wired like that. So you have to take that risk and be willing that you're not going to be liked and approved by everyone. You have to in order to follow your bliss. And you have to trust that life, like nature demonstrates, has a way to reorient itself. Like mm-hmm. hurricanes happen within a few months or a few years, it's luscious again. Fires happen and it regrows again. Life is that in our lives as well. So you can stay in this barren, you know, life or job or relationship or whatever it is and stay in your fear or you can take risk and follow your heart and trust it will work out. That's how it worked out for me. So I can only share that. But the journey is hard. I do not want to sugarcoat it. It is freaking hard. (laughs) But the taste of chocolate at the end of the journey is so delicious that it makes it all worth it. My heart is broken over and over again, I promise you. But as a Sufi saying says, break my heart or break my heart again so I can love even more. So the journey breaks my heart. There are people who criticize you. There are people who hurt you. There are insecurities you go through. But in that heartbreak, there is an opening. And you can choose to make the opening enabling to love even more. All right. I cannot think of a better note to end on. I don't want to end. I want to just keep going forever. But the time has come. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for this entire hour, for everything you have done for the planet, for the people on the planet. And no doubt there will continue to be impact that ripples down from this forever from your work. It's absolutely incredible. And I'm so thankful that you've shared your story and your journey and your learnings and everything else with us today. Thank you so much. I'm truly grateful for your company, your questions, and the space that you have created. That is so beautiful. And I invite everyone to join Daughters for Earth. Just check daughtersforearth.org and just see it and learn at the minimum. And maybe you'll do more, but just go there if you can. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Link will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening. The Story of Woman is a one-woman operation run by me, Anna Steckline. So if you enjoy listening and want to help me on this mission of adding woman's perspective to mankind's story, be sure to share with a friend. One mention goes a long way. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and make sure to rate and review the podcast while you're there. For more content from the episodes and a look behind the scenes, follow The Story of Woman on your social media platforms. And for access to bonus content, ad-free listening, or to have your personal message read at the end of every episode, consider becoming a patron of the podcast 
or you can buy me a one-time metaphorical coffee. All of this goes directly into production costs and helps me continue to put out more and better episodes. In exchange, you'll receive my eternal gratitude and a good night's sleep knowing you're helping to finally change the story of mankind to the story of humankind. Humankind.